is an Odyssey original. This is KX In Depth. I'm Rob Arch. And I'm Charles Feldman. Apparently, there were warnings. Experts warned years ago of possible catastrophic problems with that missing submersible near the Titanic. Time, by the way, running out to save those on board, provided they are still alive, will go in depth. We're also going to take a look at uh, why people are still, after all these years, fascinated by the Titanic. Also, uh, parents usually face this conundrum. The kid says, I have a tummy ache, and you don't know whether to take it seriously or when not to. Well, we're going to find out when you should call the doctor and when you should not. We start, though, with the uh, safety issues raised about the submersible that is now missing. Salmer Cogliano is a professor of maritime history at Campbell University in North Carolina. He hosts a YouTube channel. It's called What is Going On with Shipping. Sal, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, guys. So tell us a little bit about this uh, missing vessel and what its history is in terms of safety. Sure. Uh, Titan is a submersible. It's launched from a parent ship, the uh, Polar Prince, and the submersible was custom built for these expeditions down to Titanic. It's been doing it now for two years. This is the third season that they have been in operation, a five-person submersible. And the key thing to remember is submersible is a, a vessel that doesn't have all the accoutrements of a submarine. So it's designed for very short duration dives and usually very specific set dives. In this case, uh, the 3,000 meters or, or 3,800 meters, 13,000 feet down the Titanic. There's, uh, there's a guy by the name of uh, Mike Rice, and he's been giving an interview. Uh, he's been on this uh, missing submersible before, and he says on each of his four trips, the sub lost contact with the surface, so much so that it took him several hours to find when they did service, even though they were just, you know, very close to the ship, still took a long time to find them. Uh, how much of a dangerous signal should that have been with this particular vessel? Well, communications is always key, and communications in extremely deep water is problematic. Uh, it's not like a cell phone service where you could just call. It it's, uh, involves a very unique thing. As a matter of fact, most of the communication that they did was by a text message. It was through uh, basically a computer sending it down. And this submersible had a very limited area of operation. It needed contact with the, the parent ship to be able to home in on Titanic. And so at any time you lose communications, you basically get into an abort mode where you want to come back in because the potential of losing communication, of losing contact with the parent sub becomes very difficult. Understand this thing is the size of about of a minivan. And when it pops up, it needs to be able to communicate and broadcast where it's located. Uh, you Once you're in Titan, you can't get out. You have to be unbolted. 17 bolts have to be removed to get you out of this submersible. Is there any certification process for this particular vessel? vessel? That, you know, that is the big question. Submersibles operating, for example, in the United States, the American Bureau of Shipping, which is a classification agency, has a 273-page document on how to certify these submersibles. And a matter of fact, one of OceanGate, the company involved here, one of their submersibles is classified by the American Bureau of Shipping. And what a classification society is, it's a third-party entity. They come in much like you would get your vehicle inspected for driving down the road. It's a third party that comes in and ensures that 
all the maintenance and all the procedures are being followed. In this case, OceanGate decided not to do that. And, and the CEO basically came out and said that these classification agencies are redundant. They slow us down. There's too much red tape. We are on the cutting edge and we're going to be better than they are. But again, one of the reasons you have these classification agencies is to see things that maybe you're not visualizing at the time. And there's going to be a lot of looking at why there was no classification. They were not breaking the law because they're in international waters. You don't need to classify this vessel. All right. Very quickly, uh, we've heard reports. They've heard banging sounds uh, that they think might be from that sub. Uh, why is it so difficult to zero in? If they can hear the sounds, uh, how long does it take to zero in on exactly where the sounds are coming from? Well, according to reports, those bangs only coming every 30 minutes and the duration of it, what you would want and what should have been done is some sort of beacon placed on this submersible so you can home in on it. Sound takes a while to travel, travel through water. You need to get multiple fixes on it to narrow it down. And unfortunately, the intermittent banging is, is really not enough to kind of focus in on. All right. Thank you. Sal McCagliano, a professor of maritime history at Campbell University in North Carolina. So we're still talking about the uh, Titanic and how it is just uh, a part of not only our culture, but I dare say uh, cultures around the world. There was a blockbuster movie, uh, but the fascination began really after it sank. And that was more than 100 years ago. So what is this fascination? Ted uh, Fitch is co-author of a few books on the Titanic, including On a Sea of Glass, The Life and Loss of the RMS Titanic. Ted, thanks for being with us. And thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. So what is it? I mean, other ships uh, in history have gone down, some before the Titanic, some after the Titanic, some in, you know, in more recent years, perhaps even bigger. Why this fascination with the Titanic? Why would people spend, in the case of this uh, submersible, uh, $250,000 to go and look at it? It's a, a very good question. And I think a lot of it has to do with you had the the story of what actually happened with the ship is something that you couldn't have written in a movie and made it sound more fascinating. I mean, the brand new state-of-the-art ocean liner with some of the wealthiest and most influential individuals in society, all the way down to some of the poorest individuals. And really that microcosm of society of the day on board. Uh, and I think there's so many stories that played out during that sinking where most disasters happen um, very quickly where um, it's almost no time to act where it took the ship two hours and 40 minutes to sink and you had all these dramas in, in human situations and how people were gonna spend their last hours and uh, survive or help others or back cowardly or whatever it might be. So. There's this endless fascination with the human element. And then you have the fact that it's become really so ingrained in popular culture across the world and multiple countries. It's really become a symbol, uh, much more than a historic uh, topic in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think it started with that. That human story is really what captured people initially and persists to this day. And cinema, I think, plays a big part in this because it wasn't very long afterwards that uh, movies started being made about the Titanic. Of course, uh, a lot of books uh, and uh, not to forget the book A Night to Remember, which was just a very compelling read. I read it as a young person, was just really entranced by the whole story. But I think that even in Nazi Germany, they made a film about the Titanic. And of course, they dressed it up. It was propaganda against the West. 
uh, at that point. But what was the fascination, do you think, for movie makers and storytellers uh, with this story? Well, like I said, I think it, it really is a, a ready-made story. If you look at the actual history of what happened, it doesn't really require a lot of um, glamorizing or adding additional stories into it, even though we know that does happen with um, just about every version of the movie because you have to make it compelling for screen. But it really, the story, if you take even just the factual approach to it and what individuals did and what happened, it, it's so dramatic that it really is already there. Um, and I think... People make movies, they're successful, they're, and obviously James Cameron's movie is one of the most famous examples of that, but uh, interest seems to wane, and then something comes back up, like this horrible situation that's going on right now with the um, lost individuals on the submarine, and it always brings that back into the forefront of public thought, so it never seems to really go away, even though it does wane and, and wax in between. Would it have been better if it were never found? I, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I, I think there's a certain risk involved in any sort of exploration. Uh, you can obviously have a lot of conversation and debate about whether people that are tourists should be allowed to go and, and whether artifacts should be raised. But there's been a lot of things that have been discovered about the sinking. Uh, first and foremost, obviously, was that people um, had come to believe the ship sank intact and they found the wreck and they found that's really not what happened. And you go back to eyewitnesses and a lot of people said that it broke in half when it sank and were ignored. So there's there's a lot of like archaeological forensic type of things you can find about the sinking and the the people that were on board it by exploring the wreck. Um, so I, I would be horrified, obviously, if these individuals do not survive this current situation. But um, I, I would not I wouldn't say that it would be unfortunate the wreck was ever discovered. Uh, and the wreck itself is disappearing, isn't it? Uh, slowly, yes. I mean, I think that's been overplayed to an extent. I mean, there's the superstructure, certainly, which is, has thinner materials and metal has been uh, breaking down and collapsing in on itself. But the actual main part of the hull of the ship is going to persist for a very, very long time. So I, I think that, yes, it is deteriorating, but maybe not as quickly as what uh, some individuals have claimed over time. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, that is uh, Ted Fitch. He's co-author of uh, some books on the Titanic, including On a Sea of Glass, The Life and Loss of the RMS Titanic. Coming up, parents might be ignoring their kids a little too much. When it comes to tummy ache complaints, we'll explain what a new survey finds. Uh, right now, though, we're still on the topic of kids. And a new report from the National Assessment of Educational Progress finds average math and reading scores for 13-year-old students across the country have dropped to their lowest level in decades. Marlene Dandler is founder and CEO at Seashore Academy, which is several campuses in L.A. and Orange Counties that teach preschool all the way up to eighth grade. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to assume, uh, and may I assume, uh, by the alarm bells raised by this report, that it is not specifically just due with the pandemic. There might be other factors involved. If so, what are they? Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, screen time is such a challenge for parents these days, but it's something that every one of us can take action on. So while this is alarming, there are actually some very practical things that parents can do to help their kids' reading scores and math scores. Um, but it really does start in the home, um, and it really starts as young as kids in strollers. Um, you know, being on iPads at a very young age, being on iPads and tablets at dinner time versus you know reading books, uh, reading magazines. 
you know, we really uh, believe strongly that kids should not be learning on screens and it's the most passive way to learn. It's the least engaged, least exciting way to learn. And it just doesn't have results. And too many schools are, you know, having the kids on screens all day long, every day. And, you know, the pandemic only exacerbated that with the Zoom. Um, now they're back in the classroom, but they're still on screens. Um, and it just the results, the results are in. It doesn't work. Well, and and as Rob, I think, pointed out, while uh, the downward trajectory began prior to the pandemic, it, it certainly accelerated during the pandemic, which does lead to the question whether or not we kept schools closed too long. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, really a big believer in keeping kids in person, outside, uh, away from screens, really learning the fundamentals, you know, handwriting, cursive, mathematics, um, all of those things, uh, you know, really could be taught at a very early age. It, and there's nothing rocket science about it. it. We've done it for decades. We can do it for decades, but trying to put kids in front of screens to do this, um, you know, is, is, you know, it really hasn't, hasn't been effective. How would you answer someone who uh, brings up the fact that uh, when they were kids, or, or let's just go ahead and say, when I was a kid, I got in trouble because mm-hmm. I read comic books a lot, and I watched a lot of TV, and therefore I was hurting my education, but I, I think I came out okay. Uh, how do you answer someone who says, did we, did we have this problem before, and it's going to be fine, and now we just have different technology we're talking about? Sure. I mean, to be honest, I, I tell parents all the time, getting kids into comic books is great. Uh, you know, just we want kids to love reading, whether, you know, if they're into baseball facts and they're picking up baseball fact books and they're memorizing their stats, that's reading. If it's lizards and insects and gems and minerals, that's reading. It doesn't have to be the Odyssey and the Iliad. Um, we want them having intellectual curiosity. Uh, if it's interested in cars, if it's interested in dolls, whatever it is, uh, just to be able to to go to the library to pick up, you know, Maggie's, we I just encourage parents to turn off the screens in the car and fill their back seat with with books, comic books being one of them. There's nothing wrong with Calvin and Hobbes. If that's entertainment, that's great. Um, the kids are still reading. What so, about what about schools though? Uh, what do they need to do uh, now, Marlene? That uh, maybe they haven't been doing, but need to do to try to close this enormous gap, and it is a big gap. You know, I, I really would look to, you know, s- simple. Um, and, and so I'd, I'd really encourage schools to get away from some of the gimmicks, um, you know, to, to get away from the whiteboards, to get the pencils and paper out, um, to get the kids playing math games so that they're using manipulatives and hands-on. So they're learning what multiplication is, what three times three, three is three groups of three, uh, three times three, not just, not just rote memorization um, and clicking on multiple choice questions. Um, the KIPP charter schools have proven uh, track records of success, so we don't need to reinvent the wheel in a lot of cases. There are time-tested curricula out there, like we use Singapore Math. It's a time-tested, great curriculum. Um, sometimes there's a lot of politics around a brand new curriculum, and you know, Americans, I think we, we tend to just go into, oh, this is the latest and best curriculum, and sometimes, you know. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We've got great curriculum. We just need to implement it, and we need to read to our kids and make sure that they are learning pencil and paper and they're understanding the fundamentals. Um, uh, Marlene, very quickly, I understand the point about uh, pencil and paper, but if it's going to be so difficult to get the screens out of the hands of kids because they're so used to it now, is there a way to use those screens to help with this problem? 
you know, I think really at home and, you know, parents can't really control what their kids do at school, although they can choose where they send their kids to school um, a, a large part, even if it's a public district school or a charter school. Um, you know, with the advent of chat GPT, I think there is the real risk um, that kids don't learn to write if parents aren't strict about uh, making sure that they learn those skills at home if their, if their schools aren't doing it. All right. um, so while the technology can be used as a tool, uh, we need to really make sure our master. All right. Thanks so much. That's uh, Marlene Dandler, uh, founder and CEO at Seashore Academy. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Felton. Hollywood writers rallied at the La Brea Tar Pits. They look to drum up more support as the strike enters its eighth week. And we are joined now by Joe Henderson, who's a writer, producer, and co-show runner for the hit series Lucifer and was at the rally today. Joe, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So let me ask you, these big rallies, uh, they're cathartic for sure, but do they make a difference as far as the studios are concerned, do you think? I mean, the hope is they both send a message to the studios of not only the solidarity within the WGA, but also interunion. Like what I find incredible and inspiring every single time is it's not just us. So many unions are coming together and both supporting us and also see us a bit as the tip of the spear of a battle that they're all going to be in themselves. So one, I think it helps us understand that we're in a fight that's bigger than us, but two, get a sense of who we're fighting with. So whether or not they're getting the message, we're getting the message to ourselves. And honestly, that's half the battle because we're the ones that need to just keep fighting. If the um, actors uh, go on strike too, and they have authorized a strike if one is necessary, if they do, could that signal or maybe spark a generational change in the way the Hollywood industry, uh, movie and TV industry works? I think so. I, I think we're, we are at an inflection point. We are at a generational moment where, uh, one, you just see labor in general really fighting for its power. But in particular, actors are under a uh, existential crisis right now. There is a question of who gets to own the rights to their very faces and voices. And I do think that them coming out with us would be an incredible thing. Also, them getting a fair contract would be an incredible thing, too. I don't necessarily think them if they get a good deal, that that's a bad thing at all. I want every union to get what they deserve and what they need. So, listen, I'm still hoping the AMPTP gives them a deal worthy of what they're fighting for. It's just that they haven't shown a willingness to do that yet. So we did, of course, reach out to the uh, studios and a statement that uh, we got says, and let me just read this. It's very uh, quick, Joe. It says United, uh, yeah. uh, that the uh, studios remain united in their desire to reach a deal that is mutually beneficial to writers and the health and longevity of the industry. Uh, does that sound like the studios that you know? Listen, all, all I know is we're ready to get back to negotiating right now. We have made it very clear that we'll start talking right now in two minutes, in five minutes, any time we want. They're the ones waiting. Now, they're saying it's because they have to talk to us one at a time, but that's something that, that they have constructed. The truth is they could come back to the table today, and they're choosing not to. And we're just – all we can do is withhold our labor and fight for them to come back to the table to give us the deal that we want. You know, it's been interesting uh, watching writers go on strike because the the, the writers can uh, write many of their own signs, and they're uh, they're pretty yeah. interesting. I think one of the best ones I saw was earlier on. Uh, they were uh, some writers were protesting outside of a place where they had done some filming for the TV show Billions, and the sign said, "You're making billions. 
you can afford to pay us. Uh, what are some of the best signs you've seen? Oh, um, uh, AI doesn't have childhood trauma is quite possibly one of the most <laughs> terrifyingly accurate signs I have ever at least read. Not, at um, least not yeah. yet. Not yet. Yeah, give it give it time. Um, but there's been some. I mean, the, 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 what's kind of amazing is the amount of creativity you're seeing on these signs. The amount of the amount of uh, creativity you're seeing between people, like the number of writers who are either meeting or getting to reconnect on the lines has been really inspiring. Uh, and it sort of reminded us, one, of our collective power, and two, how much we're all in this together. All right. I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, that is Joe Henderson, a writer and producer, co-showrunner for the hit show Lucifer. is at the uh, Writers uh, Guild rally today. You know, if you have kids, they probably have complained at some point about a tummy ache. Mm. Do you think they were maybe making it up sometimes? Do you mean to tell me the kids might fake it sometimes? Uh, yes. Wow. I never thought of that. Yeah. A new poll from the University of Michigan finds one in six parents say their kids complain of tummy aches at least once a month. Less than half of those parents, though, don't talk about it with a doctor. Well, this is Dr. Daniel Gangian, pediatrician at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. Thanks for joining us today. So we'll grant that sometimes kids can fake it, but, you know, sometimes uh, they're not faking it and uh, there's something wrong. And when there's something wrong, it's hard to tell if it's just a little tummy ache that'll go away or if it's something that needs to be uh, talked about with a doctor. How does a parent know the difference? Tummy aches are really common in kids. And uh, what I always recommend parents to do is, is get a better history. Just talk to your child, see what's going on in their life, make sure there's nothing bothering them in terms of, in terms of psychologically, bullying, whatever. But then also find out if there are other concerning red flags that can add up to something big. Like, for example, blood in the stool, heart swollen belly, um, pooping, uh, um, or real uh, as well as pain that starts in the center of the stomach, goes to the right lower side. That could be the appendix. You want to watch out for that if there's any vomiting or difficulty swallowing. Um, so other things that are accompanied just besides of the tummy ache, then you definitely want to let your pediatrician know. So they could assess the child, see if they need to do any testing, or just change the diet, which is a big thing. You raised a very interesting thing there, um, that sometimes kids have uh, tummy aches because it's a psychological issue. Perhaps they're being... If they're at school, they're being bullied at school. Uh, maybe they're even having problems with their parents. That unfortunately happens too. When kids show up to your office as a doctor, can you tell, can you weed out those kids who legitimately have a physical manifestation showing up as a tummy ache as opposed to something that might be psychologically based? Yeah, oftentimes it's, it's it's all about a good history. You kind of listen to the child, see what's going on, and then you kind of, you'll talk. You'll talk to the child, and you want to listen to what the child is saying, but you also want to look and read the body language and see what the child is not saying. Are they having difficulty looking in your eye when they're talking? Are they really uncomfortable? Is the parent making them uncomfortable? A lot of these children that have anxiety stomach pains have a, a parent that has a lot of anxiety as well. So you want to ask about the parent has anxiety running the family um, that can be causing this. The mind and the gut are very much connected. That it that something is going on in the mind will affect the gut. And you, and you easily can think about this like the people that have butterflies in their stomach when they're nervous because they're nervous in their mind, their stomach feels it. So there's a strong mind gut connection. 
So if it's a case of where a child has a tummy ache and, and, and you can tell that it's from stress or worry about something, what's something that a parent or a caregiver can do to maybe help that there before you go to a doctor? The first thing you want to do is have your child lie down a little bit, see if they um, uh, want a little bit of food, sometimes hunger pain, um, and see if the Tylenol improves it. Um, ask them to use the bathroom. Sometimes kids get constipated, they get tummy aches. Um, uh, ginger ale is really a great trick uh, because the ginger calms down the stomach. Um, and it's going to help with this. There's a lot of gas. So ginger ale has a chemical that can help with the gassiness as well. So that's a nice little trick you can take. You know, it's, then, it's, it's, by the way, it's, it's, it's funny you should mention the ginger ale thing because I remember when I was growing up, my, my mother used to do that. And when I got older, I thought, well, that was probably just an old wives' tale. But ginger ale actually works? Yeah, oftentimes ginger in general works to calm the stomach. But there's also a chemical in sodas. You have even noticed they fizz with tiny little bubbles. How come they don't make these giant big bubbles? Because there's a, there's a chemical in there that takes the bubbles and makes them into tinier portions. If you have, I mean, if you swallow that, if a kid has a lot of big bubbles in their stomach or gas bubbles, it will help decrease the, the size of the bubbles and make the kids feel more comfortable. So, yes, it does actually work a lot of the time. And if it works, great. But if it doesn't work, then you got to come and, and speak to your pediatrician. All right. Dr. Uh, Daniel Ganjian, pediatrician, Providence St. John's Health Center, Santa Monica. Thanks for joining us. Did so you, what I heard, what, yeah. I, what I just took away from that yeah. is uh, when uh, when I want, to uh, say, uh, uh, a Coke, and my wife, who's very health conscious, says, no, right. you drink too much of that. Uh, you're going to get fat if you're not getting fat already. I'm going to say, no, but I'm very upset. I need <laughs> I need the soda. The doctor said so. Yeah, and and I and that's true. But I my mother used to be always you know shove the ginger ale. I got older, I would look around and go, "What about that bottle of wine?" Yeah, <laughs> would that would that would that do the trick? Well, champagne, champagne. Yeah, that you makes you feel better. Champagne always settles me right down. I know how you feel. All right, that's it for KDX in depth today. We'll be back tomorrow at one p.m. 